Rarely do we encounter an issue in medicine as divisive as contraception. Was it always this way? Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, your host, and with me today is Dr. Anya Collier. Dr. Collier is an Assistant Professor of English at the University of Maryland. She holds degrees in European history, international business, and English education. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Collier. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Please tell us about the earliest forms of birth control. Well, we know that Egyptian women were quite advanced right down to having their ovaries removed to prevent pregnancy. On a day-to-day basis, though, a woman who didn't want to become pregnant in ancient Egypt might use what we would today call a tampon, which was a, a wad of papyrus or a linen of some sort that was soaked in uh, caustics that today we would think of as a spermicide. And then, of course, there were all kinds of herbal concoctions, some very useful, some completely useless. And also, some of the ancients used what are sometimes referred to as pessaries, or almost like a female condom. And those could be made out of hollowed-out gourds. The pomegranate was very popular at different times in early history. Tisanes were made often, in fact, in countryside in Germany. These were popular all the way to the 19th century, but it's gone back for 1,000-plus years. Women often brewed tisanes out of the leaves of uh, fruitless trees, thinking that if the tree was fruitless, then surely it would, these things would you know, make them fruitless, logic, I guess. And then there were some clergymen, even, who experimented with the, I think of them as dips, something kind of liquid that men would place on their members that supposedly sometimes worked. Uh, I don't know if it was accidental or if it was because, again, some of these dips were just sort of acidic and acted as a primitive spermicide. But these are the most commonly used things that mostly women, it usually fell to women to deal with not getting pregnant or dealing with unwanted pregnancies. But there were things that men did too. Hmm. So the pomegranate. (laughs) (laughs) Why the pomegranate? Yeah, I'm having a hard time with that one. Well, that one is, I think, is probably on the books in a bigger way than other things that are just as odd because of a woman who is often referred to as history's first gynecologist, Dame Torchula, I believe is the pronunciation of her name. She's an Italian woman, 13th century, practiced medicine, and she recommended the pomegranate as a sort of pessary, so hollowed out, placed upside down, if you will, and before sex and in hopes that that would actually catch the sperm and prevent pregnancy. So she's not the first to have suggested it, but she details it better than any other source. Now, how did the church feel about birth control once you get into the Middle Ages? Well, it's in the Middle Ages that the church really, you know, of course, historically speaking, it's really, you know, finds its feet. Feudalism is starting to close out. The church has remained throughout the Middle Ages the sort of one source, if you will, not just the spirituality, but physically it was kind of when towns and, and cities sizzled, churches were still around, as were churchmen. But this was a time when the church began to tell, to try to dictate to people individually and collectively about their own personal sexuality. Thou, you know, save marriages, you know, sex is for marriage bed and nothing else. It's only for procreation, not for pleasure. But so often, as in so many places and times and situations, what we preach is not necessarily what we practice. And it's fascinating that many, many churchmen of the Middle Ages were actually the ones who document for us just what people were using or trying to use in regards to birth control. In fact, more than one pope 
had interesting wives tucked away and children and so forth, but also people like um, Pope Paul XXI, who was a Spanish doctor as well as acting as Pope in the 13th century, and he came up with a what I call a liquid condom. It's made out of a lead-like substance and smeared on, but I don't think he had all his sex right because he had men smearing it on the testicles, not the oh. penises. <laughs> how well it worked, he didn't leave records of that. But uh, it's amazing how many monks and people serving a church who tucked away in the scriptoriums writing away about abortions and birth control devices. And they were, there's a really rich resource there. But, you know, of course, there's... What they were doing individually is quite different than what the church was dictating at the time. But he felt it was a kind of condom that, that he hoped would prevent um, pregnancy. And he, he also told men to show some restraint, and he uh, experimented with herbs as birth control for women. But he also promoted something on the order of the condom. Hmm. Now, how did you discover all this information? Oh, years and years and years of digging through really ancient, dusty stuff just because I like doing that, and this, I'd find one little bit, and then I, that would lead me to another little bit and another little bit, and it's just really needle and haste that kind of research. And I've been so fortunate to be connected to three major research-oriented universities with these fantastic databases that, you know, the average person just doesn't have the good fortune to be able to use. So I really um, exploited that in my research. Now, when we move into the Renaissance, did they offer anything new to the world of contraception? The Renaissance is such a funny time, isn't it? You think it, that it's going to offer so much advanced knowledge, and but when it comes to birth control, not a lot. No, they actually seem to have gone backwards. There was a lot of use of charms and magic and my favorite Renaissance, early Renaissance condom, is one that was woven out of she-mule's hair that was supposed to be done in a sort of ritualistic manner with the man and woman doing it together. And then he placed it over his number, and this was supposed to be a condom, but it sounds just horrible. But supposedly, it coming this, this fur coming from a she-mule carried all kinds of magical properties that would prevent pregnancy. But in all, the Renaissance isn't really a rich time for advances in anything to do with birth control until the coming of the Indian measles, and that is when we see everything kick into place and and sort of panic over STDs that had had never been realized historically before. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Anya Collier. We are discussing the colorful history of contraceptives, as outlined in her book, The Humble Little Condom. Now, you mentioned the Indian measles. What is that? Well, the Indian measles is what Columbus's sailors brought back with them. We today call it syphilis, but it had a lot of euphemisms before it actually was given the name syphilis, and Indian measles was probably the first one believed to have been the contagion was believed to have been brought with the sailors from, obviously, the islanders that they had contact with weren't Indians, but as we all know, Columbus incorrectly referred to them as Indians, so it kind of stuck. So as we move into more modern times, tell us about Goodyear's role in contraception. Oh, poor Goodyear. He had an absolute obsession with rubber, and he spent his fortune and his life trying to find a way to perfect it because you know, rubber... Is a marvelous uh, in its rawest form. It's really terrific stuff. But 
in extreme cold or extreme heat, it either melts or cracks and breaks. So many had come before him trying to make things like waterproof shoes and, and that sort of thing, but were unsuccessful. He was absolutely determined there had to be a way to make it a stable, usable item, and he accidentally discovered vulcanization. And with that, one of the first things he made or suggested be made out of them was were condoms because he felt that that was really would you know, really be a good use for his newly you know, new invention. And he is the man who called the rubber the rubber, literally called condoms rubbers, and had a real fascination with their production. So we can thank Mr. Goodyear for that. Well, I don't know if we'd want to thank him because, quite frankly, up in, in well into the 20th century, a lot of rubber manufacturers bragged about the fact that one could last you a lifetime. If that would give you an idea of how thick and horrible these things must have been. <laughs> the early ones didn't sell very well. The skin, the skin condoms remained. Linen kind of fell out of favor in the early 19th century because of for a variety of things, and the, the skin condom really remained. In fact, you could still buy them today, but uh, they were cheap to make, and if they were made well, they were very effective and much finer and much more comfortable than the early rubber. It wasn't really until the late 19th century with the Germans who really perfected. They were the absolute artiers and condom manufacturers until just before World War One, when the globe fell apart, if you will, and they kind of got cut off from the production, but they really made the first very fine quality rubbers prior to that. They could last a lifetime as long as you smith them with lots of Vaseline when you put them away. <laughs> well, speaking of Vaseline, now, I understand from your book that Colgate advertised Vaseline as a contraceptive? Yeah, Samuel Colgate's an interesting guy. He was one of the founders of the organization that helped Anthony Comstock bring about the Comstock Act, which really put... Uh, the condom in the, on the back shelf for an awfully long time in the United States. But, yeah, he, in spite of the Comstock Law, which, the Comstock Act, which absolutely said you must not advertise, talk about, educate about, educate about anything to do with birth control, sex, etc. When that was all happening, he happily had a huge advertising campaign that said, told women that if they were to mix the Vaseline with salicylic acid and use it as a sort of a crude pessary, that it was acted as a contraceptive, which we know, of course, today is absolute rubbish. But he was never uh, persecuted for that. It was only the little guy during the, the long years of the Comstock Act that, who was persecuted for doing anything, to, having anything to do with birth control or the education about it to include very interesting and very colorful characters in the United States, especially, who manufacture condoms on their kitchen tables and make quite a lot of money from it. Was there a medical loophole in the Comstock Act? Comstock, Comstock Act was supposed to have been just a postal act, but Anthony Comstock managed to extend it and, and use it for arresting all kinds of people under all kinds of interesting circumstances. But it did have a little catch in it that said that doctors could prescribe medical, if you will, medicinal condoms. And so uh, Goodyear, Goodrich, Hancock Rubber Companies continued to produce rubbers legally. And then, of course, they always made too many, more than doctors were likely to prescribe, and they quietly sold those to uh, chemists and druggist suppliers who quietly, again, had them under the counter. And if a, a man knew where to go to purchase them, he would just go in and get a little brown paper bag of 
the illegal condoms, and Comstock caught some and didn't catch many others. So it was a thriving trade during the very conservative, in some ways, politically conservative last quarter of the 19th century. But he also made life hell for a lot of the condoms, small condom manufacturers. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. You're welcome. We've been discussing the history of contraceptives with author Dr. Anya Collier. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. This ReachMD program is featured on Sermo, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.sermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O.com. When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card.